And this is the word of the Lord. For thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Father, we're just impressed over and over again as we read your word that Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, should care about us individually, should come down and, and minister to our hearts. Your spirit is here today to speak to each of us. It doesn't matter what our condition is or what our situation, <clears throat> what our problems or trials may be. You are adequate for them all. You understand them. And you are at work in us to use these difficulties and these joys to make us more like Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be in submission to the working of your Spirit. And we trust that in these moments that we spend looking at your Word this morning, that that will be part of the shaping process in teaching us faith, in teaching us hope, in teaching us what it means to be Christ-like. We thank you for your presence here this morning, for what it is you're doing in each and every life. And I pray, Father, that we will leave this hour with greater faith and greater joy and the capacity to serve you with um, enthusiasm, knowing that all that is done in the name of the Lord is done not in vain, but in the advancement of the kingdom. I thank you for each life here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll turn to the sixth chapter of the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, in this uh, particular section, we've been reading about a young man named Gideon. And we've heard a lot about Gideon. In some churches, they even have Sunday school classes named Gideons. And there's a Gideon Society, which is a very, very wonderful work in spreading Scripture all over the world. So we're looking at the life of, of this man who's called by God, a man who wasn't planning to be called by God, who wasn't even thinking of being called by God. He was just trying to eke out a, a living there by threshing a little grain in a wine vat when he had a theophany. That is, God came in, in, in angelic form, in a human form, as it were, to his eyes anyway, and uh, spoke to him. And he had this conversation, and God challenged him to become the new Shaphat. And this was a real, I mean, talk about a paradigm shift. We like to use that today, you know, paradigm shift. Uh, talk about that in this guy's life. I mean, to move from least on the totem pole. I, I don't know if that's a good analogy. I, I've heard that the highest one on the totem pole is the least. Is that true? i am not studied my totem poles lately, but we always talk about the lowest on the totem pole. Anybody know? Is the most important? Oh, I, I've heard somebody told me it was the other way around, but we used the term right, I guess, then. Lowest in the totem pole. Depends on which tribe you belong to. <laughs> Probably true. But anyway, he, he is a man who wasn't expecting to hold any kind of leadership role, and yet he's been called to lead Israel in recovery of their land from the oppressor. So let's, let's read at verse 33. Then all uh, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves, and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and the Abizarites were called together to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout Manasseh, and they also were called together to follow him. He sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali, 
and they came up to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, If thou wilt deliver Israel through me, as thou hast spoken, behold, I will put a, a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on the ground, then I will know that thou wilt deliver Israel through me, as thou hast spoken. And it was so. And he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, and he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full, bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let thine anger burn against me, that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece. Let there be dew on the ground. And God did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece, and dew was all on the ground. He's passed the first test in destroying, remember we studied this last week, in destroying the altar of Baal and the Asherim that was attached with it. And doing something that was bound, I mean, it's like poking a stick up in the harness nest and swinging it around. That's what it was like, pull the altar of Baal down. Because there were Canaanites all around and there were, there were uh, Israelites who had become given over to the Canaanite religion. And here he was standing up for God. And, and we remember last time that he was given the a nickname, Jerubbabel. <laughs> let Baal contend. Let, let Baal fight was the idea there. And it was intended originally to be kind of a uh, derogatory phrase or term. But it becomes a badge of honor for this man. I just got the outline to you this morning. And we actually started on it last week. So we're a little uh, further down the outline here. But... On F3, you see the term, Jerubbabel. And it could have been that his father, it seems to imply in the scripture that his father gave it to him, but certainly the, the pagan Canaanites applied it to him with great diligence. And they were going to see if Baal really was God by saying, curse on you, Baal will take care of you. And, but of course, we'll, we notice as we get into the seventh chapter, the scripture picks up with that and calls him Jerubbabel. You know, so it becomes a, a really a badge of honor for this particular man. Now they're facing the return of the plague of locusts, as it were. Only these are human locusts. The Midianites and the Amalekites and other nomadic peoples are coming from the east, up on the plateau to the east, and, and coming down into Israel for their annual sacking, <laughs> their annual collection of the tribute, uh, ripping off the land, really, is what they're doing. Taking everything they can possibly take, leaving the people absolutely impoverished and starving. So th they, they came year after year for seven years, and no problem. The eighth year they came, they didn't expect any problem, but of course they hadn't heard that God had called Gideon to be a Shofat. And they wouldn't have believed anyway, probably, because obviously their gods were stronger than Yahweh because look what they've been able to do to Israel. Yahweh hadn't been able to defend them. In this passage, we read that Gideon has called men to join his force. And we read, first of all, that the Abizarites, now that's his clan. His family was within the clan of the Abizarites. And so they're the first called, and some come from the clan. And then it goes to the wider group, the tribe of Manasseh. That's the tribe to which the Abizarite clan belong. So Manassites come and join the army. And then the call was sent to the other tribes that surround the Jezreel Valley. You know, there, there's no call to Judah. There's no call to Dan or Benjamin. They're way down south. We're just dealing with the tribes that are around the Jezreel Valley, which is where the Midianites are going to camp. 
And so some come from Asher and Zebulon and Naphtali. They all come up to, to meet Gideon. Thousands. I'm sure he was very encouraged as he saw these thousands of men streaming in with their weapons. As I highlighted to you last week at the end of class, I, I think they came with hope in their hearts, but they weren't very certain because who is this Gideon anyway? They knew very little of him. And he'd never been a military leader before, as far as the scripture enlightens us anyway. And, and so it's a bit of a question. There's hope, but a question here. Will this man be able to lead us to victory? Well, what we find as we move into the verses there from 36 to the end of the chapter is rather than being emboldened by this great horde of men that are coming in to join his cause, Gideon gets cold feet. He was not completely convinced that he was cut out to be the next shofat, the next deliverer, the next, as we call it, judge. He, he wasn't sure that that was really his role. I mean, I, I'm sure it kept coming back to his mind. I'm the youngest in my family. Our family's the least in the, in, in the clan, and the clan's the least in the tribe. I mean, God couldn't have picked somebody less prepared to lead Israel to victory over their oppressors. Now, we have to remember that Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. And he was alive and well then, just as he is today. And he came, and you can just know he was there. I mean, Satan is going to be where the action is, personally. You know, I mean, Satan's demons are everywhere, and evil is all around the world. But Satan goes where the real action is, where God is on the cutting edge. That's where he is. And so he is whispering. You can know he's whispering to Gideon, and he's telling him, you don't have the ability, you don't have the commitment, you don't have the calling, you're a nobody. How can you do this? Well, Gideon wasn't able to just, I mean, wasn't ready to just toss in the towel because God had brought him thus far and given him a measure of faith. So he decides to put out the fleece. And this is, of course, where we get that whole concept of putting out the fleece. The angel of the Lord, as he had spoken to Gideon before, had allowed him to test him. Remember, Gideon said, well, if, if you're really the Lord, would you please stay here while I go get, make, prepare a sacrifice and bring it back and, and, and put it here, and, and then you demonstrate to me that you really are the Lord? And you remember that the Lord said, sure, I'll still be here. And hours later, Gideon comes back with a sacrifice all prepared, puts it on a rock, and the angel touches it, and the whole thing goes up in flames. And then he disappears. The angel is gone like that. And then God speaks to him from heaven. What more proof do you need? You know? So Gideon was convinced that God had spoken to him. And so he dared to ask from the Lord another sign. There's a measure of faith in that, by the way. He had displayed a clear willingness to obey the Lord if he knew this is what the Lord wanted him to do. That's why he tore down the altar to Baal, because it was clear God wanted him to do that, so he did it because of that willingness, and he had a heart attitude of humility. And that's one of the things that I'll be emphasizing uh, in this lesson is the role of humility. It is such an important measure of our faith. Because of this willingness to obey and this attitude of humility, the Lord allowed him to ask for another sign to confirm that God had really called him to this task. He wanted to know whether this horde of Midianites and Amalekites was really going to be defeated by this army that was gathering here and whether this was the time. Will you empower me, Lord, 
to lead our people to victory over this massive enemy force. So Gideon puts out the fleece. Now, I, I want this all to come across right, so I hope you'll, you'll hear me here. Gideon's fleece test is described to us as something that actually happened. It is not given to us as a statement of theology. God is not saying here, whenever you don't know what to do, just put out a fleece. In the New Testament, we're told to test the spirits. We're told to test the message of the messenger, of the preacher, by Scripture. If what he says isn't found in Scripture, don't listen and don't believe, because it is not true. This is the sole word of God on this planet. There is no other source of truth. This is it. We are nowhere commanded in Scripture, however, to put out a fleece. We're not commanded not to, but we're not commanded to do it. So what I'm saying here is that it's not wrong to put out a fleece in areas where God's revealed will is not clear to us from Scripture. I mean, if, you know, the Scripture says certain things. Like, for example, if a guy were to say, I want to know the Lord's will on this, whether I should shack up with my girlfriend or not. So I'm going to put out a fleece. Well, that's bunk. The Scripture is clear about that. No. <laughs> the, will, the will of God is no. You don't do that. The Scripture is very clear. You don't have to have a fleece to know about that. But it can be very dangerous to put out a fleece when someone is not particularly committed to obedience, nor is he or she living in humility and faith. These are prerequisites. <laughs> you've got to be committed to obedience. You've got to be living in humility and faith for such a thing ever to be useful. Because if someone is not committed to obedience to what is already clearly laid out in Scripture, there is no point in putting out a fleece because you will not get an answer that way. God will not answer prayers that are not to the point of what's important for us at the moment. If we're walking in disobedience, God doesn't hear any prayer except the prayer of repentance. Because we must repent before God be before our prayers will be heard and answered by Him. To those who are walking in faith and obedience and humility, uh, generally speaking, we will find the will of God clearly laid out before us without the necessity of a fleece. So, the point of it all is, I, I don't think uh, to, do, to lay out a fleece is wrong. Probably all of us have done it at one time or another. But, uh, but I think we have to be extremely careful because we can put out a fleece and get what we think is an answer and do the wrong thing because we weren't really prepared or committed or, or walking in faith to, to receive from God the answer. Dr. Glenn Schaefer, who teaches on our faculty at Simpson uh, wrote an article that was recently published in the Alliance Life, which gives five points on how to find the will of God. And I think if you go through those five points and look at the scripture there, you know, that, you know that's all you really need to find out what, how God directs our, our lives. But I'm not condemning anybody who's, who's used a fleece, because I'm sure we all have it at some point or another. Uh, but God indulged Gideon, and he gave him a positive sign in both cases. I mean, he made the fleece wet and the ground was dry, and then Gideon was thinking, oh, well, you know, it's just possible that fleeces gather moisture better than the ground does. So let's do it the other way around. Let's have a dry fleece and a wet ground. That would be positive proof. And God said, fine, we'll do it, Gideon. And God did it. Is that manipulating the Almighty? I don't think so. Not at all. God is simply enabling this man to have the faith to do the job because this is going to be a real tough job 
as we see as we proceed further here. When we know what God's will is, we should move forth with great confidence. And that's exactly what Gideon does. So let's read about it in the seventh chapter. Then Zerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Marah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, lest Israel become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore, come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned and 10,000 remained. Here we have thousands of warriors, 32,000 men have come, armed, prepared for battle, ready to expel the invader under the leadership of this new Shofat Gideon. And we, he set up the camp at the spring of Herod. Now, we have been at the spring of Herod. It's a, it's a beautiful little place right at the base of Mount Gilboa on the northwest corner. Now, you have somewhere back in your files there the map of the land. Right up here is the Herod Valley, the valley that comes from the Jordan into the Jezreel. Jezreel Valley is the big valley up here. And then there's a narrow valley that goes between the Hill of Mara and Mount Gilboa. So the Hill of Mara is to the north and Mount Gilboa is to the south here. And there's a gap of about three miles between the two hills. And as you go to the east from, from those two hills, the, the valley, it's a fairly narrow valley that widens out into the Jordan Valley. And in the process, you drop from the elevation of Jezreel to uh, about seven or 800 feet below sea level at the Jordan River at that point. And so when you come back in through there, as soon as you pass the Hill of Mora and Mount Gilboa into the Jezreel Valley, it broadens out suddenly. Right there, it broadens out. And right at that point where the two mountains are opposite each other is the spring of our road. It's right at the base of the hill called Gilboa. That's where they're camped. Israel is camped at the spring of our road up on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. And the Midianites are three miles to the north on the lower flank of the hill of Marah and spreading into the Jezreel Valley. They have a lot much larger camp because they have a much, uh, a much larger <laughs> army. Gideon has recruited 32,000 men. The enemy has 135,000 men. We find this from the 8th chapter, the 10th verse, where the figure is given. 135,000 men to 32,000. That's a 4 to 1 advantage for the Midianite Amalekite Confederation. This seems woefully inadequate to have 32,000 men to face this much larger army. The scripture will also tell us that they had camels that spread out like the sand of the sea across the landscape where the Midianites were camped. It is to his great credit that Gideon firmly believed that God would give him the victory although he was outnumbered four to one. He was certain he believed God would give him the victory. And God was pleased with that faith. And God was so pleased with it, he was going to test it and make it even stronger. <laughs> we never can rest on the laurels of our faith 
because God's program is to strengthen us day by day in our faith and our commitment and our obedience to make us more like Christ. There was no way that Gideon could have been prepared for what God was going to ask him to do next. I don't think it was in his mind. He already was thinking, well, I got a smaller army, but, but I can win because God will be with me. You know, it probably would have been 100 days of just thinking before he'd ever thought the other way that God might think he had too many men. Gideon knew that his uh, great disadvantage numerically would have been compensated for by God. However, God came to him and said, Gideon, yes, Lord, you have too many men. Uh, Lord, <laughs> did you get out your abacus? <laughs> it's pre-computer days, you know. <clears throat> pre-calculator days. And I think it was dumbfounded by God's analysis of the situation. God, have you ever been a general of an army? Why did God make that statement? God made that statement because he knew that it was feasible for 32,000 men to defeat 135,000 men in the flesh. Now you might think, eh, not too likely. Case in point, Alexander the Great. He did it three times. Alexander the Great, with an army of just a little bit larger than Gideon's army, defeated a larger Persian army three times. In one case, he was outnumbered five to one, and the enemy army had chariots, and he had none. And God? Was God in this? I have no idea. <laughs> Scripture does not talk about Alexander except peripherally, kind of an oblique reference to him in Daniel in the 8th chapter when it talks about the goat coming across the landscape and knocking down the Persian ram. So, what was this? This was... Macedonian and Greek troops, in their own strength, led by a brilliant leader, one of the greatest commanders ever to walk the surface of this earth, um, pagan as of, of pagans, and defeated a much larger army. So it was possible to do. And God was not into allowing any such possibility. He didn't want any of the Israelites to be tempted to take credit. Look what we did. Aren't we good? We wiped out the enemy army. There's a great tendency for we as human beings, for us as human beings, to take credit for things that God does, remembering that only God can do good. We are not in our flesh able to do any good. Only good is done with God does it through us. That is clear in Scripture. Scripture says that in you, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. Jeremiah tells us that the human heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so... God wanted them to know that this victory came by my power alone, not by human strength at all. Therefore, God said to Gideon, obey the scripture, Gideon. The scripture says that you're to send home all those who are afraid. Really? Is that what the scripture says? We read from Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8. God is here through Moses giving the laws of warfare. And he says in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8, Then the officers shall speak further to the people, and they shall say, Who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house, so they might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. In other words, if somebody's going to be a coward, send him home, because they will influence others to be cowardly on the battlefield. If they're afraid, they'll make others afraid. Send them home and just remain with the courageous individuals. And so Gideon did that. He said, all right, guys, line up. 
Whoever is afraid, raise your hand. I'm sure he was hoping for maybe five or ten, <laughs> maybe a dozen. Twenty-two thousand men <laughs> raised their hands. Can you hear our knees? That's the, you know, those aren't drums, those are our knees. You, know. you probably have read accounts, as I have read, of military historians who will tell us that it's much more typical for a soldier to be afraid and act cowardly on the battlefield than to act bravely. In fact, I, I think I've noted this before. I read an account where it said that, for example, in a fighter squadron in World War II, um, it was very common for, say, out of 12 planes, only one or two to actually engage the enemy, and the other tried to stay away as far as they could. You know, we always get the flying tiger type John Wayne movie, you know, where they're all in there doing it, you know. But apparently the, the bulk, even of infantry, infantrymen, don't try to hit anything when they're shooting. And you can imagine, this is toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose, face-to-face battle. This isn't shooting somebody 2,200 yards across a, a field in the trees. This is fighting somebody. You're looking him in the eye, and you're stabbing him with a sword or a spear. I mean, it's close combat. You can imagine how fearful that would be, especially if you are not a trained soldier. These, this is a citizen army. These guys haven't been through boot camp and, you know, three years of, of combat training. The, these guys are just coming out of their fields. <laughs> How there are holes in the ground virtually to fight the to fight the enemy. This decision is commemorated in the name of the site. The spring is called Harod. Harod means trembling. This is the spring of the trembling. And it has been commemorated ever since. It's still called the spring of Harod today. Ten thousand men were left. Oh good. The odds are not 4 to 1 anymore. They're now 13 to 1. Read verse 4. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people (laughs) are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But every one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go with you. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hands into the water and up to their mouths, were 300 men. But all the rest of the people kneeled down and stuck their faces in the water. Do you know that Jedediah Smith, the great mountain man, died that way? One of the greatest uh, tough guys of the western frontier, First, first uh, American to penetrate California from the, from the east. The Mexicans didn't believe that you could, or I should say the Spanish, it was still Spanish at that time. The Spanish didn't believe anybody could come across the great American desert overland, so they didn't even worry about guarding that. And here this guy shows up. They were really upset with him. But, but Jedediah Smith would die at 31 years of age because he stuck his face in a pond of water to drink and got, got it in the back by some Indians. So it's not a good way to drink when you're in battle. (laughs) And the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands. And Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Notice how the verse ends. This verse, or or this passage, 
is a testimony to the audacious arrogance which we as people are plagued, with which we as people are plagued, that required God to trim the army further. It is ridiculous to think that 10,000 men are going to defeat 135,000 men. Now, I'm talking about people who are equally equipped and more or less equally trained. Probably the Midianites were even better trained. So we're not talking about one side that has a few troops but has tanks and cannons and the other side has bows and arrows. I'm, we're talking about equal individual fighters. 10,000 to 135,000. I mean, 13 to 1, not really the best odds to, to face if you're on the one side. And yet, there were those who would believe that by their own strength and ingenuity, they had won the battle without the help of the Lord. God knew this. God knew that was human nature. And there would be those who claim, we did it. We did it. We defeated him. I killed 13 all by myself, and my neighbor killed 13, and you know we wiped out the enemy army. So God was going to reduce the army to such a size that no one in his wildest imagination could claim that they won this victory by their own might and brilliance. All 300 of us. We routed this 135,000-man army. No problem. Piece of cake. Right. Personal pride is extremely seductive. It is the foremost manifestation of the flesh within us. Nothing more demonstrates the flesh at work in us than pride. Pride in ourselves and what we can do and who we are. It is so insidious and damning that the scripture over and over again proclaims that human pride leads straight to destruction. Look what I have done. Nebuchadnezzar did that. He stood on top of his palace and he looked out over great Babylon and said, Is this not great Babylon which I have built? And suddenly from heaven he heard a big no. <laughs> and just so you'll know that you didn't do it, you're going to eat grass for seven years like a cow. Conversely, true humility is the foremost manifestation of godliness. Some of you may know, um, or at least have heard of, I know some of you know, uh, Dr. Walmart knows, and, and Alan knows, um, Hugh Humphreys, who was on the staff at Simpson College for over 30 years. And in his last message that he gave before he retired, he focused on the topic of humility. And he was a man who lived that in his life. Uh, even though he was a man of, of great talent and, and great brilliance, he was a very humble person, and uh, I, I think that if anything characterizes a true man or woman of God, the number one characteristic is humility. Nothing else comes up to humility. God was intent on stripping away all possibility for any of the Israelites claiming that they had won a great victory. We did it. Taking their sword and banging on their shields. We did it, you guys. We did it. He wanted them to recognize that their utter dependence was on God for every good thing. We're told in James that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. He is totally immutable. Well, the drinking test separated those with a keen sense of alertness who could control their physical appetites. These 300 weren't saying, well, I'm not thirsty. I don't want to drink anyway. You know? These guys were all thirsty. <laughs> Where's the water? You know? and it, they controlled their appetite so that they could be alert while they're drinking. The others just splash, you know, head into the water. 
I hope, uh, you know, if I was one, I'd make sure I was upstream from all these guys <laughs> uh, drinking. You know, they, they just threw caution to the wind to satisfy their physical desires. You see this. You see this tragedy happening even today where you hear of the, of the fall of a religious leader because he threw caution to the wind and, and indulged himself in some physical appetite and lost everything that God was using him to do. But can you imagine? Only 300 out of 10,000. I think Gideon was incredulous. Lord, I'm going through a lot of guys before I'm finding one. He was trusting in the Lord for victory, but I think he was at he was almost clinically depressed here as he looked at this particular situation. Of course, I'd have to ask Paul what it means to be clinically depressed, but I think he was really down in the mouth, <laughs> to put it mildly. He only had 300 men left to face 135,000 of the enemy. I don't know, I'd be depressed if I were looking at that in the flesh only. Gideon and all Israel would have to learn what we know from the Scripture because we have the whole counsel of God here before us. That God doesn't even need any army to defeat the enemy. Let me finish today uh, on this note from 2 Kings chapter 19. 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 32. The scene is Israel, uh, Judah is under attack by the forces of the Assyrians. And the Assyrians have moved into the land. They're marching on Jerusalem. And God has sent Isaiah the prophet to Hezekiah the king. And this is what Isaiah says. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. He shall not come to this city or shoot an arrow there. Neither shall he come before it with a shield nor throw up a mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it from my, for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrian. And when the men arose, that is, Sennacherib the king and, and his bevy of intimate counselors, the next morning, behold, all of them were dead. The whole army was dead. And there are some ludicrous, ludicrous explanations about this out there. I mean, there are, there are liberal scholars that come along and say, well, you know, the bubonic plague. Well, the bubonic plague doesn't kill in one night. It takes a while. Oh, uh, what it really means is mice ate all their bowstrings so they couldn't find. Oh, man. Why can't we let God be God? <laughs> so Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and returned home, and he lived at Nineveh. And then, of course, it goes on to say his sons got ticked at him and killed him. Dad, how can you possibly explain losing an army of 185,000 men without fighting a battle? There's something wrong here. <laughs> the angel of the Lord destroyed the enemy army without a single soldier of Israel. Well, Gideon's going to have to learn that God can use 300 men to do a mighty, mighty thing. And this will be a powerful testimony to Israel and to the later Shofatim, what God will do. We'll read on next week.